I'm not sure if you've heard of the term, the long game or the short game. It has nothing to do with golf. The long game and short game, as it refers to the corporate world, uh, is uh, the realization that one must plan for the long term instead of the short term. In Shane Parrish's article, The Surprising Power of the Long Game, he talks about playing the long game and the short game, advocating for the virtues of the long game, especially in the world of business and in one's personal life. What is it, you may ask? Well, the short game is putting off anything that seems hard for doing something else that seems easy or fun in the temporary. The short game offers visible and immediate benefits. The short game, he writes, is seductive. Why do your homework when you can go out and play? Why wait to pay for a new cell phone in cash when you can put it on your credit card and pay for it later? Why go to the gym when you can go drinking with your friends? Why invest in your relationship with your partner today when you can work a little bit extra in the office? Why bust your butt at work to do the work before the meeting when you can simply read the executive summary and pretend to have done your research like everyone else in the meeting? The problem with the short game is that the costs are small and never seem to matter much on any given day. Doing your homework today won't give you straight A's the next. Saving $5 today won't make you a millionaire. Going to the gym and eating healthy today won't make you suddenly fit. Reading a book won't make you smart. Going to sleep on time tonight won't make you healthier tomorrow. And yet as the week turns into months and months into years, the short game compounds into disastrous results. It's not the one-day trade-off that matters. It's the accumulation of the results of playing the short game. The long game is the opposite of the short game. It means paying a small price today to make tomorrow's tomorrow easier. If we can do this long enough to see the result, it feeds on itself. From the outside, the long game looks pretty boring. Saving money and investing it for tomorrow. Leave the party early and leave the fun early to get some much-needed rest. Investing time in your relationship today so you have a foundation where when something happens, you can call on them. Doing your homework before you go out to play. Going to the gym rather than watching Netflix and countless other examples. Shane writes, in its simplest form, the long game isn't really debatable. Everyone agrees, for example, we should spend less than we make and invest the difference. But playing the long game is a slight challenge, one that seems insignificant at the moment, but one that becomes the difference between financial freedom and struggling to make the next month's rent. The first step to the long game is the hardest. The first step is visibly negative. You have to be willing to suffer today in order to not suffer tomorrow. That's why the long game is hard to play. People rarely see the small steps when they're looking for enormous outcomes, but deserving enormous outcomes is mostly the results of a series of small steps that accumulate into something visible. And this is something corporate America and the corporate world advocates for. Play the long game. This happens in politics. This happens even in relationships. But the choosing of playing the long game versus the short game is actually 
based on the Bible. It's biblical. The scripture is full of verses that remind us to play the spiritual long game. Verses like Colossians chapter 3 verse 2 that reminds us to set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Because my friends, there will be a time when our lives will come to an end and our lives will be assessed. And the playing of the spiritual long game will reap great rewards, but playing the spiritual short game will bring with it terrible consequences. We forget at times there will be a day called the day of reckoning when our lives will be called to account in our words and in our actions. It will be assessed. And on that day of judgment, both Christians and non-Christians will have lives assessed. We will all stand before the judge, Jesus Christ. How will he assess our life? The scriptures leave for us some important reminders to help us remember to play the spiritual long game, to prepare for that day of reckoning when our lives will be judged. What are those reminders? If you have your Bibles this morning, I'd like you to turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25, we begin in verse 31 all the way to verse 46. Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46, as we finish, we conclude our sermon series entitled Masterclass, Learning Important Life Principles from Jesus' Parables. This is our 15th sermon in this sermon series. I hope you will not stop studying the parables of Jesus. We've covered 15 of them, but there are 35 plus more in totality of the parables of Jesus. And I hope you will study these wonderful teachings from Christ. Now let's give a context for Matthew 25. This parable is given in a larger sermon called the Olivet Discourse. It's a message that Jesus gives when he's on the Mount of Olives, and it's in response to the question of the disciples. What was their question? Well, the disciples knew that Jesus would soon die. In fact, Jesus talked more and more about it. And so they asked Jesus the question in Matthew chapter 24, verse 3, Jesus, when will you come back to earth again? When will you set up your kingdom? And it is in response to this question that Jesus delivers the sermon found in Matthew 24 and 25, known as the Olivet Discourse. And this parable is but a section of this wonderful sermon. We pick up in verse 31 to 33. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them one from another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And He will set the sheep on His right hand and the goats on the left. Here in verse 31, we are given the setting of this parable. It's when Jesus Christ comes back again. This will happen at his second coming. And when he comes, he will do so to reign over his millennial kingdom and sit on David's throne in Jerusalem. Now, when this happens, Judge Jesus will gather everyone who has survived the seven-year great tribulation. And there he will separate those who can enter the kingdom, the millennial kingdom, and those who cannot. The believers who survive the tribulation are moved to the right. They are known as the sheep. The unbelievers who survive the tribulation are moved to the left. 
they are the goats. From this parable, I want to point out a very important principle. It is that in any judgment of God, there is a separation, there is a dividing. We'll talk about the criteria of division later, but number one of your taking notes, in every judgment, there is a separation. In every judgment of God, there is a separation, there is a division. You see, at the end, not everyone gets the same thing. There will be both an assessment of believers and of unbelievers. You see, all believers, all those who place their trust in Jesus Christ, will go to heaven. Everyone gets into heaven, but the rewards are different. All those who have rejected Jesus and his free gift of salvation will go to hell. And there, I believe the Bible teaches degrees of punishment, but everyone is still in hell. If we were to quickly make a review of the three eschatological judgments that the Bible talks about that will come in the future, you see that in every judgment there is a division. The first one is the judgment seat of Christ. This happens after the rapture of the church. And this judgment found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, specifically verse 10, is for Christians. And what in the world do Christians need to be judged about or on? And Christians at the judgment seat of Christ will be judged, will be divided, will be separated based on how faithful they are and versus how unfaithful they have been to the teachings of Christ. We talked about this in detail in the parable of the talents. This is a judgment for our works, for our rewards, not for our salvation, for our rewards. The judgment seat of Christ, we call that the Bema, will be a judgment for Christians, for our rewards, and there we will be divided. There's a second eschatological judgment. It's called the Great White Throne Judgment. And that takes place after the 1,000 millennial reign of Christ. And this is a judgment for all unbelievers of all ages. This is a judgment for their salvation. The book of Revelations, chapter 20, verses 11 to 15, talk about the Great White Throne Judgment. And the Bible says... That those whose names are not written in the book of life will be cast into the lake of fire. Of course, those who believe in a work's salvation will not have their names in the book of life. And they will be separated from God in this judgment. So there it is again, a separation in God's judgment. And there is this third of eschatological judgments, for lack of a better term, the judgment of the sheep and the goat. This is a judgment for all those who live through the great tribulation and based on whether they place their trust in Jesus as their Savior or not and will determine whether they are allowed to enter into the promised physical kingdom called the millennium or they will be denied entry and thrown into hell. As you can see, in every judgment of God, there is an assessment of lives by the Lord and there is separation. It happened even in the Old Testament. In the judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah, the judgments upon the nation of Israel, the judgment upon the world with Noah and his flood. Now you say, this is a theological concept. What practical implications might there be? Well, let me help you in that. For us to understand that in every judgment, there is a separation, there is an assessment. It helps us to deal with our anger and bitter issues with regards 
to equality. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I look about how God seemingly deals with men and women in this world, I get frustrated, I get angry, I get bitter. How I know that a certain person plays the game where he lives in the cover of darkness, and yet it still seems that he is receiving more blessings than me. A person who does not live a righteous life seemingly is blessed by God. Lord, how can that be? We can say, Lord, that's not fair. It makes us angry. It makes my blood boil. We feel that it is highly unjust that bad, quote-unquote, bad people who are able to use unethical means progress very quickly in this life. And here we are trying to do what's right. And we hit roadblocks every step of the way. Or even in the church, we know that in this large church of ours, there are what we call wolves in sheep's clothing. There are people who are in our church who come for ulterior reasons, alternative reasons, not the study of the Word of God. They're here to do business. They're here to borrow money. They're here to sell a product. They're a church to steal. Yes, that's why I always warn you. Just because you're in the church, you should not leave things unattended. You leave your phones in the pew, they will be gone. We've had things disappear. Phones, computers, laptops. If you leave your Bible, don't worry, no one will take it. They don't want that. But this is the church. And you say, well, pastor, if you know who they are, you should out them. We should have a shaming session. Let's all point to the people that we believe are bad people. Let's point them out so that, so that they will be identified and we will know to avoid them. Well, guess what? That's not our job. It's not our job to do the separation. So good people and bad people, however you define good and bad, are all welcomed in this church. It is a public place. You are welcomed here, whatever your intentions, whatever your motives. But there will be a day when the Lord God, who knows all and sees into the hearts of men and women, will be the one that does the separating. And men and women, and even in the church, that operate as wolves in sheep's clothing and think that they can play along the Christian life to be accepted, you will be found out. Just as a shepherd knows what a sheep and a goat is. Look at verse 32. In verse 32, the Bible tells us, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goat. None of you are shepherds, I know that. But I don't know if I could really distinguish between a sheep and a goat if they pass by very quickly from afar. From afar, they just all look white and fluffy. But for a shepherd, he definitely knows the difference between a sheep and a goat. And so while we may be able to fool people in this world, no one is going to get past the judge. No one's going to be able to sneak into the wrong line. It will be very clear. The sheep on the right, the goat on the left. It is with that clarity that the Bible tells us God will separate in his judgments. 
And for that, that should serve as an assurance to you that at the end, it will be made fair. Let's continue looking at verses 34 to 36. Then the king will say to those on his right side, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. In this parable, the king invites the sheep on his right side to enter to the kingdom, to enjoy what has been prepared since the beginning of the world. Contextually, this is the warm invitation of Jesus for those believers who have survived the tribulation to enter into the promised millennial kingdom and to to live in the land. Don't you worry. We as resurrected Christians, having have our resurrected body at the rapture of the church, automatically enter the kingdom because we will come back with Jesus during his second coming. And there the Bible tells us that we will co-heir and co-rule with him. We will be ruling those who physically enter the millennial kingdom. The reason they are invited is because they extended hospitality to the Lord by offering food, water, clothing, and also showing care and concern. Now, I want you to listen very carefully. This passage is not teaching a works salvation, meaning you need to do these things to work your way into heaven. Our Roman Catholic friends often use this parable to say, look, there it is, a works salvation. Faith plus works gets you into heaven. But you see, you've got to understand some principles of what we call biblical hermeneutics, some principles for how to interpret the Bible. First of all, the Bible does not contradict itself. It is written under the inspiration of one God, the one and only God, the true God. And so the Bible doesn't contradict itself. And in many places throughout the scriptures, it clearly teaches that salvation is by faith alone. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. Not by works salvation is so that no one can boast. It is by faith, not by works, so that no one can boast. So there is clarity in verses like Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. So what do you do when you've got a verse that is very clear like this, and then there's a verse that can go one of two ways, you think in your mind. The principle of hermeneutics is we use that which is clear to help us interpret that which may be unclear. And so if the verse is very clear about salvation by faith alone, then we look at a passage like this and say, no, it cannot be teaching a salvation by works. And so putting it into its proper context, and that's why I gave the background earlier, it's not teaching a work of salvation through works. But like the entire book of James, what Jesus is talking about is about the outward actions that evidence an inward personal faith that one has with Christ. While works and evidences of works find no basis in our salvation, It's also very important that in our sanctification, our spiritual maturity as Christians, there must be both inward and outward actions that demonstrate our faith. Here's principle number two. In the Lord's judgment, when the judgment comes, a criteria in the assessment of inward faith is the outward expression of Christian hospitality in action. 
a criteria in the assessment of inward faith is the outward expression of Christian hospitality in action. And we see this play out in the various judgments. For the Christian at the judgment seat of Christ, this is the basis for our rewards as God assesses our faithfulness and our inward faith. For the sheep here in the second coming of Christ, ready to enter the millennial kingdom, their outward expression of Christian hospitality evidences their inward faith in Christ the Savior and therefore are welcomed into the kingdom to enjoy all the good things that the millennial kingdom has to offer them. And you say, again, very theological. What's the practical implications? Well, this principle is important for us to understand because it goes without saying that faith without works is dead. It means that Christians that exhibit no tangible evidence of their faith is useless. It doesn't mean that they're not saved. It doesn't mean that they've lost their salvation. It simply means that they are useless in the work of the Lord and therefore will not be rewarded. Faith without works is, is dead. It's a dead faith. And when you're dead, you're useless. You can't do anything. So you see, while we don't believe in a work salvation, God does care about works. He cares very much about our Christian hospitality, how we care for strangers and others and even those in our community. He cares very much about how we show concern. The reminder of this criteria as an assessment in the final judgment of our lives should get you to ask the question of yourselves, how do I treat others? Do I love others in my community? How do I treat those who are lower in, my, in, in social ranking than me, like the janitor, the server, your house helper, the custodian, the janitor, the mall guards, your own employee? Because these acts of kindness bring with it, the Bible says, great rewards. I hope you will remember that. There's a third reminder. It is found in verses 37 to 40. Look with me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did, you see, when did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? Note this, verse 40, and the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. In the parable, the sheep, the righteous, will ask the question of the judge, When did we show Christian care and concern to you, specifically, directly? When did we bless you? When did we thank you? When did we reciprocate your kindness to us? In a tangible way, and Jesus replies, if you show Christian hospitality to others, then it counts as being done as unto the Lord. You see, the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, sovereign, righteous, eternal God doesn't need anything from us. Yes, God has graciously bestowed us many things, and we, you know, we want to thank Him. But the Bible tells us God is a spirit. So what are you going to do? Here, God, thank you very much. Here's some money for you. Does God need the money? No. How is he going to use your paper money? That in his sight, it's actually worthless. And yet we want to reciprocate 
His goodness in our lives. The Bible tells us how we bless God, how we serve Him, is we do it to others in His name. So that everything is done as unto the Lord. You see, we share care, we show care and concern to others, not because they deserve it. Many times they don't. Not even because we are compassionate and feel sorry for them. We do so because we want the privilege of serving God, and therefore we do these things to others because that's the way we serve God. That's how it gets counted to our account for how we have served and blessed God. You see, this is another reminder for our future judgment before the Lord on that day of reckoning, number three. Number three, caring for others is the means by which we serve God and thank Him. Caring for others is the means by which we serve God and we thank Him. Let me give you an example. If, let's say someone does something wonderful for you. Let's say that person saves you from a fiery car crash. He bravely pulls you out of that burning car and saves your life. How would you show your appreciation? If I were to ask each of you to write down five things you would do for that person who pulled you out of a burning car, what would you do? Well, number one, maybe you'd write them a thank you note. Okay, that's good. Maybe uh, you would give them some money. I can't repay you back for what you did, but here's some money for you. Maybe you would go to the local bakery and uh, get them a cake or something to show you to show them your appreciation. Or maybe you would level up and take them to a fancy restaurant and and treat them to a nice hotel buffet. Let's say they're on a diet, and they've told you that, and so instead you want to show your appreciation by going to the local Mark and Spencer or whatever other store and buy them a nice shirt. So you're ready to bring that gift to show your appreciation to the person who pulled you out of that burning car. But as you're presenting that gift in appreciation, what if the person who saved your life told you, you know what, I really have everything in life. Would you, would you give what you're going to give me to a friend of mine? Let me stop here. How many of you would say, okay, I think most of us, okay, no problem. The gift that you're going to give to the person who saved your life, you're going to give to one he would like you to give to. And so you ask, well, what is the name of your friend and he tells you the name of his friend and you know that person and what if that person happens to be your worst enemy complicates things doesn't it would you still give what you plan to give to the one who saved your life if he asked you to give what you're gonna give to his friend your enemy You may not like it, but I think most of you would still give it because you've already promised to give something. You may not like it. You will be begrudgingly taking them to that buffet. But you do it not because that third-party friend did anything for you or deserved any of it, but because the one who saved your life asked you to do it. Is that correct? Yes. I hope you see my point. There is one who saved us. His name is Jesus Christ. He died in our place. And he asked us not to lavish upon him what he already has and actually doesn't need. 
but he asks us to care for others, people we may not even know, people who are our enemies, to extend our gratitude to what we would give God, but extend it to helping others. Would you do it? I hope we would. You see, this third reminder should radically change the way we approach serving others and giving things to others. It's not about giving and serving those who deserve it. We serve and we give because there is one who has saved our life and in appreciation for what he does, he asks us to redirect what we want to do for him and do it to someone else in his name as unto him. I don't know if you ever noticed, if you ever grabbed an offering envelope from one of the offering boxes, you'll, you'll note on that envelope uh, a little line there that says Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving offering. That line isn't there only for November when we celebrate Thanksgiving. It's been the practice of our church for decades. That, that offering there is for men and women in the church who historically through the decades would like to offer back to God in a very tangible way a thanksgiving offering because of what God has done for them. They can't give the money to God, so they will give instead that monetary amount to the church or to missions or to some Christian organization or to a friend in need. When each of our three children were born, we praise God that they were born healthy by the grace of God. And I remember we so thank God for the gift of a child that when each of the children were born, we gave a thanksgiving offering to the Lord. Yes, we prayed and gave an offering of verbal thanks to God, but intangible means of telling God, I want to bless you, I want to thank you, we gave money to, to missions and to the church as a way of thanking God. When we celebrate a milestone birthday in our family, or when there is a milestone anniversary, we do the same. We give a thanksgiving offering to the Lord for giving us another year of life, for allowing our marriage to reach a certain number of years by His grace and in His mercy. That giving can come in tangible forms, but it doesn't have to be money. It can come in your time. Or because of God's grace in your life and He blesses your business, it gives you a promotion that you're willing, if you don't have the money to give, that you're willing to take some of your vacation time to go teach at DBBS, to serve as a counselor in youth camp, to attend step classes, to serve in the community. That is your thanksgiving offering to the Lord. You may try to skirt the system and say, well, I wrote God a thank you note. I don't think God needs any more thank you notes. You may take yourself out to dinner and say, well, that empty chair, that's God's place. You can fool whoever you want. But in reality, the Bible is very clear. 
If you want to show forth thanks to God and you want to serve Him, you do so by caring for others. Now the parable turns its attention to the goats on the left side which are the unbelievers who survived the great tribulation and are wanting to enter into the amazing millennial kingdom. Look at me at verses 41 to 46. Then he will also say to those on the left side, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not take me in naked and you did not clothe me sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hunger or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, Assuredly, I say to you, insomuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Those on the left, the goats, were turned away because they didn't show Christian hospitality. Again, this is not teaching a works salvation. Contextually, the situation is such that the Christians were severely persecuted by the Antichrist during the seven-year Great Tribulation, specifically the last three and a half years, according to the Scriptures. Christians during this time would need help more than ever. But these unbelievers didn't show care or concern for the welfare of these believers during this horrible time because their own inner faith did not accept Christ as Savior. And so these unbelievers are prevented from entering into the millennium, thrown into hell, not because they didn't show care, but because they rejected Jesus Christ and therefore did not show care to His followers we call Christians. But I want to point attention to the word everlasting in verse 41 everlasting fire and there it is again in verse 46 everlasting punishment and then the word again eternal life i've said it many times the decisions we make on this earth and in this lifetime will reverberate throughout eternity meaning the stakes are high when you and i live this life and what is at stake is eternity Here is our fourth reminder, if you're taking notes, number four. In the judgment, on that day of reckoning, what is at stake in the final judgment is eternity and is eternal. What is at stake in the final judgment is eternity and is eternal. Same root word, eternity, eternal, and yet variances in their concept. Eternity, the noun. What is at stake in the final judgment is eternity and is eternal. It's a reminder that you can enjoy life, absolutely. The book of Ecclesiastes tells us we can go on vacation and have a wonderful time. We can enjoy a wonderful Father's Day meal without anyone guilting us. Because as God has blessed you, you can enjoy His provisions. That's what the book of Ecclesiastes and other scriptures talk about. But it's also very important to balance that out. That you and I, in the enjoyment of our lives, must take our lives seriously. Because what is at stake is eternity. Let me give you an example. Let's say you're not a basketball fan. You care nothing about the PBA. You care nothing about the NBA. 
And let's say you made a friendly wager of one peso that the Raptors will beat the Warriors to be the NBA champions of 2019. You're not from San Francisco or Toronto. You don't care much about basketball. But the reason you made this wager is because you have a friend who's a fanatical basketball fan. And he loves the Warriors. And just to shut him up, you wager one peso that the Raptors will win. If you don't care much about basketball, would you even care to watch game six? Would you even care to watch the game? Probably not. Would you even care that someone quickly texts you the score if you're working so that you can know who won? No. Why? Because it's only one peso. If you win, great. You get one peso. If you lose, who cares? It's only one peso. Not much is at stake. Same situation. You're not a basketball fan, but you're a gambler. And you place a wager of 100 million pesos, your entire life savings, that the Warriors would win because they always win, right? It's a sure bet. The Warriors would win. Even if you hated basketball, if you have 100 million on the line, I'm sure you would sit at the edge of your seat for the entire game up to the last second that Curry missed that shot to win the game. Just a disclaimer, I have nothing at stake in this game. I'm a Mavericks fan. But think of the disappointment. What's the difference about a non-basketball fan caring about the NBA Finals? The difference is what is at stake. In life, we play for keeps. In life, eternity is at stake. It is a wonderment that people take their life And simply throw it to the wind. When eternity is at stake. I think it's because we've forgotten that what is at stake is eternity. That we live our lives the way we do. If you and I understood what is at stake. You and I would certainly pay more attention with the type of life we're living. The other aspect is what we call the eternal consequences. Yes, what is at stake is eternity, but the consequences is that which is everlasting, that which is eternal. We call it the forever consequences. Now, once we make a decision, there's no way of changing it forever. Let me give you another example. Let's say I take you to the top of a 20-story building, and at the rooftop of this 20-story building, there is another 20-story building right next to it. And what separates these two 20-story buildings is only one meter of separation. Three feet. And I take you up there and I dared you. I said, you know what? We can all, young and old, jump three feet. One meter. It's an easy jump. If you're willing to jump from this side of the building to the other side of the building, I'll give you 100 million pesos. By the way, I don't have 100 million pesos. I keep repeating the number because that's in my head. I'll give you 100 million pesos if you can jump from this side of the building, three meter, excuse me, three feet, one meter to the other side. Would you take that challenge? It's an easy jump. I think all of you in this congregation could take that jump and win yourself 100 million pesos. I don't know. Because you may be thinking to yourself, wait, 
knowing how clumsy I am, 30 people could make that jump and I would be the one that trips over the railing and falls. But would you do it? Because if you miss and you trip or you fall, you fall 20 stories to your certain death. You can't in the middle of the fall say, oh, by the way, I think I don't want to take that offer anymore. I don't want to jump. Once you miss, you're going down. That is the reality of the decisions we make in this life. They are crucial decisions because the decisions we make today have eternal consequences. The Bible tells us that. Has everlasting, forever consequences. And yet we've forgotten that and so we live our lives lightly. And yet we forget that every decision we make in this life is so crucial because it has everlasting, eternal consequences. The stakes are high. Each decision we make, each action that we do is for eternity and has eternal consequences. Those who place their trust in Jesus Christ as their personal Savior enjoy eternity with Him forever. Those who do not place their trust in Jesus as their Savior will suffer. Note this, eternal punishment. That suffering does not stop in hell. And they will never have another chance to make a decision for a second chance. That is what the parable of the rich man and Lazarus talks about, which we already studied. There are no do-overs for the Christians who live this life for the Lord. They will enter into their eternal rewards for those who do not live according to scriptural principles as Christians. They will not get rewards, and that is for forever. You don't go to heaven and say, Lord, I'm, I'm ready to start earning rewards that last forever. That is what the parable of the talents remind us. These truths, although academic perhaps in your mind, have such great biblical, practical principle in our lives that it should radically change the way we live, how you see life and assess life and how you live it. If I'm living with a heavenly mindset focused on eternity and what is eternal, it is very different from one who lives their life for what is temporary and temporal. There was a time in my life when I did not understand this truth. Playing the corporate rat race game. Just trying to climb to the next step. Reaching that next stage in life where I'll get a nicer car. Can afford a bigger house. Pushing for that salary raise, for that promotion, making friends because I know I'm going to need them. And I'm not saying that you don't plan life. But the way I lived my life, I did those things so that I could progress well in the corporate world. In fact, people would tell me, well, Steve, you are very prudent. You're making these connections. You're setting yourself up so that you will be well taken care of when you retire in 40 years, in 50 years. And I thought that to be true because in the corporate sense, in the business world sense, I was playing the long game. I was studying. I was making the right connections because I wanted to make sure that in 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, that I played the long game so that when I retire, I will retire well. There's nothing wrong with that. But here's something we've forgotten. The secular long game 
is really the spiritual short game. Did you get that? The secular long game is really the spiritual short game. What is 50 years compared with a million years? What is 50 years compared with a billion years? What is 50 years compared with eternity? You and I are called to play the spiritual long game. Live with wisdom. Live prudently. Live for the secular long game so that when you retire, you retire well. But more than that, you better be playing the spiritual long game. Because we don't know when God will call us home. And on that day of judgment, He will call us to account that day of reckoning. Why is it so hard for our generation to play the long game? Heidi Preeb writes from a secular perspective of why the long game is lost on this generation. Everything about society, she writes, we live is a targeted towards instant gratification. We have the instant meal, the instant money, the instant messaging. We have get-rich-quick schemes and weight-loss fast programs. We have one-night stands to dull the aching of long-term loneliness and ecstasy pills for when the nights, when the agony sets in. We are a nation, and he describes America, but this can describe the Philippines, a nation of quick fixes, easy, easy answers, and overnight solutions. And as a result, it's all too easy to forget about what we want in the long term. We know how to get everything we want at that moment. Every teenager knows how to open up Tinder or Instagram and receive a hefty dose of validation with the likes. But very few can tell you what makes them feel the most fulfilled, where they hope to be in 25 years, what makes them feel good on the days where quick fixes just aren't enough. And this is not simply a teenage epidemic. How many of you go on social media for that quick validation that enough people have liked your picture that you are someone of worth? She writes, as a nation, we're forgetting that our lives are so much more than what's happening this evening or this weekend or this year. That our sense of well-being isn't just a matter of how we're perceived or how well we can distract ourselves from our own lack of direction. We're forgetting to play the long game with our life. The one long day that leaves us feeling fulfilled and accomplished even on the bad days. The one that gives us an underlying sense of meaning when the shortcuts just can't take us to where we want to be. The one that provides us with a healthy sense of self that doesn't depend on external validations. When we play the spiritual long game, we will be validated forever. You see, we as a church, we as a body of Christ, we as individual Christians have forgotten that unless we live for the spiritual long game, it will be disastrous for those who play the spiritual short game. There will be a day of reckoning when Jesus Christ will separate us and he will separate to the side those who have lived their lives in his approval for his glory. And there we will be validated 
because we will be on the right side. We're living our lives today, my friends, and you know this to be true. Just to be mixed in with the group. Just to be happy. Just for the world's validation. It takes a discerning Christian to step back and say, I don't need the world's validation. I will suffer the temporary loss so that I can gain for myself an eternal gain, an everlasting validation to be on the right side of God's assessment. Let's pray. Father, this morning, thank you for your word. It is a reminder even to me that the life I live is to be lived for you. That each of us are called to live out the spiritual long game. Help every one of us to be willing to take that first step to suffer and give up the short game we are playing. It's more than about retirement. It's more than about 50 years, 60 years, even 100 years. It's about eternity. And eternity is everlasting. May it be that on that day of reckoning, on that day of judgment, each person here this morning will be able to stand before you and there hear those words of validation from the great judge. Welcome, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. May your word convict our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.